dear Mr. Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice our whole Saturday to record this podcast. This is what we found out. Sincerely yours, that song from that movie. Greetings, podcast listeners. You're through to that song from that movie, the journey through the very best and worst of movie songs. In the simplest terms, in the most convenient definition, I am your host, Dietrich. He has exactly eight hours and 54 minutes to think about why he's here. I'm joined with Alex. <laughs> Hello. And his middle name is Ralph, as in puke. His birth date's March 12th. He's five foot nine and a half. He weighs 130 pounds. And his social security number is 049-380-913. It's Ben. All of those things are true. Reference. References, as, yes, not to me. <laughs> They're definitely all true. Just a question. Have either of you ever heard the term Ralph being used as the word for puke outside of this film? Ralphing? Mm, yeah. I, I, maybe not, but it sounds like something that makes sense. I suppose like chundering or... Puke and Ralph do not sound the same. Because no. I thought you meant like how it's pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can't say I've ever heard it. No, but, but then when you hear it, it's like, mm, yeah, that makes sense. Ralphing. He's Ralphing. He's Ralphing. Oh. It sounds very American, I suppose. Because it's supposed to, like, you know, it's that sound, of, that noise of it, like, coming up. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> you, when you make the sound, Ralph. Yeah. So is uh, lockdown going well for everybody? Enjoying being locked inside watching movies? Yeah, I've definitely seen less films than you've seen recently, Ben. I can guarantee that. Have you seen Zero? No, we watched a film last night called, um, I think it was like Love, Marriage, Repeat or something like that. Oh, the Netflix one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it was it was watchable, but I wouldn't have said I wouldn't use the term "good" to describe it. But it was kind of like, do you know the concept of that community episode where they all roll the dice and there's like different outcomes? Yeah. Oh yeah. It was like that, but what they did is they did one initial one, then they went back to the point of initiation, so like the dice roll, but whatever it was in this film, which was like where they were sat around a table, and then they did like loads, but really quickly. So you only saw like s- segments of the outcomes, and then they did one long final one. So it was kind of like really disjointed and unusual. Not that satisfying, but it was there was funny-ish parts. It was it was okay. I've seen worse films. That shouldn't be a marker for how good a film is that you've seen worse films. <laughs> <laughs> terrible, terrible critique. Well, I've seen something worse. It's like when you get stabbed, it's like at least I wasn't shot. If we're talking about Netflix, straight to Netflix films, we watched one last year which had um, I can't remember the actress's name, but she was in Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. <laughs> And she, if she like get Ashley Tidsett, <laughs> no, the other lady, the one who played like London. Oh, uh, and the one it was um, London Tipton or something. She's yeah, in Social Network, that one. Uh, yes, I think it is her. Well, anyway, she gets um, like kidnapped by this guy and locked in a house, and uh, that was possibly the worst. But that was kind of like so bad it's good. Whereas okay, Love, okay, Love yeah. Marriage Repeat was kind of just like, yeah. <laughs> Take from that what you will. Does Love Marriage Repeat get a Alex recommendation? Um. I would say if you've got absolutely nothing to watch, you could do worse than this. Yeah, <laughs> should never be a possibility in modern times. <laughs> so I wouldn't say I recommend it, but I would rec- Yeah, but I wouldn't not recommend it either. What's <laughs> <laughs> that even mean? <laughs> I wouldn't say watch it, but I wouldn't say don't watch it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go out of my way to be like to somebody. You should not see this film. <laughs> I think that yeah. holds up. I feel like we need to move swiftly on. That was a chore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so today's episode is don't you open brackets forget about me close brackets you make sure you close those brackets 
Exactly. By Simple Minds from The Breakfast Club. But what happened when the song and movie came out? If only there was a segment where we looked back at that. Have you got any ideas, Alex? Ooh, interesting. I'm waiting for Ben to do the... Uh, I was so tempted, but I, mean, I thought you were going to go straight on. I didn't want to interrupt. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. So, I mean, so the year of the film release was 1985. Certain things happened in 1985 that I think we should talk about. First of all, there's Bruce Springsteen, of course, um, and then Madonna. But, I mean, this was a way before Nirvana. But there was U2 <laughs> and Blondie. And, and as well, there was music still on MTV. Do you guys remember that? You probably don't, because we weren't alive in 1985. But, I mean, those are the things that um, Bowling for Soup remembered about the year. <laughs> Brilliant work. <laughs> My research also tells me that there were miniskirts made out of snakeskin, and there was an original lineup Van Halen, as well as sitcoms and game shows on the radio. I don't know if we need to talk about anything else other than those things. <laughs> what is happening today? <laughs> Pure devolution. Other than, other than those things, on the 19th of February, which so the month was February 1985 when Breakfast oh, Club came out. This is an actual one. This is an actual one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're still, doing, we're still doing quotes from Bowling for Soup. I mean, I could bring out some more, but maybe later on, because actually the film gets a name check in the song. <laughs> so maybe we'll come back to that. But yes, yeah, so big soap fans, you guys? The TV show or the cleaning apparatus? Um, in terms of, t- yeah, TV, not not so much the, the cleaning the cleaning utensil or whatever you would call it, utensil, I don't know. Um, yeah, no soaps in TV. No. No. Well, y- really. you won't be that bothered to find out then that the first ever episode of EastEnders aired in this month. Oh, really? I always think it's longer, I guess, because has Coronation Street been going a lot longer? Yeah, Coronation Street was yeah. like the 50s or something, wasn't it? Or okay. 60s, like way earlier. So yeah, I I think I was surprised to see that this was the eighties, yeah, um, and eighty five as well. So it's not even like early eighties. No. So yeah, so, yeah. But it hit hit BBC One on the nineteenth of February, nineteen eighty five. Um, so that's something. Cristiano Ronaldo was born in this year, in this month, even February nineteen eighty five, and he was only eleven months and thirty days away from winning his first Ballon d'Or. <laughs> eleven months. <laughs> eleven months. <laughs> Just one year, one year old. Um, and in more international news. The border between Spain and Gibraltar was reopened after it had been closed by General Franco in 1969. Do you have anything to comment on that? Was, did that get a name shout in Bowling for Soup? It didn't. Weirdly, because uh, I feel like it's, it's more important news than music still on MTV. <laughs> well, maybe it's the rhyming, rhyming couplets. Well, Franco probably rhymes easily with something else. <laughs> Bono, Franco. Eh, oh, there you go. Gosh. Well, I mean, you too. Yeah, yeah. You too and Bono and General Franco. <laughs> yep, there we go. <laughs> still preoccupied with 1985. Yeah, I think it was. There's a reason that song wasn't more successful, and we've just pinpointed why. <laughs> Lack of historical relevance outside yeah. of pop culture. Well, it doesn't even like, like a lot of the things, it's just like Bruce Springsteen, but not something specific that Bruce Springsteen did, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just yeah. Bruce Springsteen <laughs> and Madonna. But as well, like way before Nevada, like a lot of the references are like this was before other things. And it's yeah. like, ra- rather than these are the things that happened in 1985, it's this is what was happening beforehand, like... Ozzy, when did Ozzy Osbourne become a, a, a movie star or a TV star or whatever it is? I have no idea whatsoever. Because when did Ozzy become an actor? <laughs> did he? Yeah, well, I mean, that's what it says. I mean, he was in uh, Little Nicky, wasn't he? And he eats the head of a bat. There was the Osbournes. And there was obviously the Osbourne. Okay. Yeah, because actually, when did reality become TV? That's another line from the song. That's it. Right. Right. So yeah, the there, there we go. That's the news in 1985. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so should we go into the film? <laughs> he says with an exasperated sigh. 
there wasn't a lot of news. I couldn't find a lot of information about 1985, actually, weirdly. I think it's because it's, you know, because we, we narrowed it down to the month of February. There wasn't that much going on, except for the launch of EastEnders. <laughs> Hence the building for suit references. Did you have, like, a seven or eight sort of, like, subheadings with EastEnders-related facts when D&D <laughs> said, we don't care at all? They just quickly scratched them out. Yeah, slowly put the piece of paper back into my top pocket. Top pocket, laddie da, someone's doing well. Well, I mean, that was a metaphorical top pocket. Are you also in your pyjamas? <laughs> well, actually, no, I got changed because I went to the shop this morning. So I'm wearing jumper and joggers. But they're kind of like mock pyjamas. Like as close to regular clothes as you can get while still remaining more or less ready for sleep. Like suit pyjamas that Barney wears in Harley <laughs> yeah, Mother. Suit pyjamas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, somewhere between the nightshirt that Marshall wears and the suit pyjamas that Barney wears. You've said quite a scene there. <laughs> Let's move on to the film. This is taken from the poster, actually, so I'm going to give a bit of a synopsis first before we talk about it. This is actually on the top of the poster, if you can believe it, so I'll read it out for you. They only met once, but it changed their lives forever. They were five total strangers with nothing in common, meeting for the first time. A brain, a beauty, a jock, a rebel, and a recluse. Before the day was over, they broke the rules, bared their souls, and touched each other in a way they never dreamed possible. Love, when you repeat, available now on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> that was on a poster. That was on the on the poster, on the main poster. My God, that's a lot of words for a poster. And as well, I don't feel like it really sums up the, the film that well. <laughs> so I actually wrote an, a, a separate synopsis search for anyone who hasn't seen it. So a teen comedy drama written and directed by John Hughes. The film follows five teenagers from different subset school cliques who are forced into spending the day together after all being given detention on a Saturday. The film stars a group of actors who would later be referred to as the Brat Pack by the media, and they are Molly Ringwald, Emilio Estevez, Judd Nelson, Anthony Michael Hall, and Ali Sheedy. So that's the film. Do you, do you think my synopsis was better? <laughs> yeah. Although I, I, I think I always think when he says like they only met once, is that like a okay? So they never met again after this. Well, that that I, I mean I didn't say that. That was the film poster who said that. Yeah, meeting for the first time. That's what I mean. Yeah, kind of. I always hoped that they would meet again. They would just keep getting detention. I mean, Nelson's character seems to got he's got dementia, uh, got detention, got detention for I he has a very very early onset. He only met once. He only remembered it once. Yeah, he seems to have had attention a lot, doesn't he? Yeah, for like three months, is it or something? Yeah, but the, maybe he's just in there by himself most of the time. He's a bit clingy. So let's talk about what our first initial impressions of the film were. D, you saw it just for the first time this past week. That's right, yeah. So it's the sort of film where I feel like being into films and being being on a movie podcast, I probably should have seen this film. And I know I have, so I can uh, join in all the hilarious chat. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I thought the film was all right. <laughs> you thought it was okay. Was it what you expected? Because like, I imagine, like I know when I first saw it, there was like references that were already waiting to happen, like the um, obviously the song which we'll go into and the fist bump at the end, but also like things like do you know like when he has his break, Judd Nelson's character has his breakdown in the middle. What about you, Dad? You know that all that bit. Yeah, yeah. So, so there was yeah. like there was things that in the film that I'd seen spoofed in gifs on Twitter, for example, where a lot of it was like, oh, that's what that is. Oh, yes. So I don't know if that maybe not soured me on it because I didn't think it was a bad film. But maybe I had less to discover watching this new film to me because I'd already seen half of it on Twitter. Yeah, you'd seen the main the main bullet points of the film already laid out through like yeah. cultural references. Yeah. How about you, Ben? I think it is a good film. I think it's interesting how you as an audience member can formulate the characters. 
like the five high school archetypes and then watch them in the second half of the film formulate themselves and how they find camaraderie in well, what is their shared parental problems. John Hughes has a way of does like magic realism where he kind of does like weird sort of it's not like a, a like a fourth wall break, but he he does things that aren't realistic. Like there's a bit where Emilio Estevez's character just shouts and and the glass shatters. It's just like things <laughs> oh, yeah. like that like don't actually happen, but they he just puts them in, and I always find them really jarring. There's quite a lot in Ferris Bueller and things like this. Is it, isn't um, the one at the beginning of this film as well? Like in the opening credits, I feel like there's like a glass smash as well. Um, I didn't watch it this past week, but I think like the the opening is like the the names coming up. And yeah. then with the song, and then like, there's like a glass smash, and it's like it cuts to the school. Yeah, it's the actual like title card smashes. Yeah, it says okay. like the Breakfast Club, and then it, that smashes. Yeah, things like that I find really jarring. I just think it's like off-putting, especially because I feel like the best parts of the film are the interactions between the young people and the bits that are quite humanistic and just real. And then when it has things like when they're all just getting stoned and just going absolutely mental, sometimes I find them a bit like. It just seems to be there for references and for pop culture. I don't think it does anything for the narrative. Yeah. I mean, what did you think of the, um, when you went into it, what were you expecting the tone of the film to be and then what it actually was? Because I know like a lot of John Hughes films that maybe we're more familiar, like Home Alone or the ones with like John Candy. I think he's playing trains and automobiles. I think that's, I think that's John Hughes. And even like things like 16 Candles or Pretty in Pink, maybe. This is much darker in tone. Like, there's obviously quite deep references to like suicide and parental abuse and things like that. Were you expecting it to be like that? So I wasn't expecting it to be quite as dark. I thought it was going to be quite a sort of fun comedy coming of age style movie. Yeah, I suppose it is a coming of age still, but I expected it to be more like, oh yeah, everyone's friends sort of thing. And it was pretty much the opposite of that. Yeah, <laughs> they all sort of hated each other, and that's why they all liked each other. It's definitely heavier than all his other films. To say he's made films like Baby's Day Out. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> or Mr. Mom. Or Dennis the Menace. Yeah. You know, and all, all the National Lampoon films, I guess. He writes teens very well, but this time he's done it with the dark underbelly. Yeah. But that's the thing. I think it's really good because they all have an image of themselves and each other. And then that is shattered. And maybe that is a glass shattering thing. Maybe it is a metaphor for that. But it all kind of shatters their images of the other people in detention. And that kind of leads them to think that it's not all... Well, all these sort of facades don't really matter towards the end. Yeah, yeah. I think I think another thing that's interesting about this film versus the other ones is the fact that he really commits to... Because it's kind of like a, like a play, isn't it? Like a one-set play. Like everything more or less takes place within that one location yes. and a few of the reviews i read were comparing it to things like um who's afraid of virginia wolf which is like the classic okay. for that sort of like one set um everything unfolds from a moment when they're all put together but yes. like i think a lot of people who were reviewing were like oh well this is interesting to begin with but they were expecting it to go into more of a classic teen not maybe not teen sex drama like something like um american pie but you know like go more down that route like we'll see them put thrust together and then we'll see the repercussions when actually like there's a real commitment in this to just throwing them all together and that is the film that he doesn't he doesn't move away from that so i think that that's quite interesting but to touch kind of what you guys have been talking about like the how they're sort of categorized as those roles and then broken apart at the end and they sort of you know there's that whole bit at the end where it's like where each the criminal, where each the princess, each the athlete, etc., etc., were all these things. It's quite interesting reading some of the critical reviews at the time because it was quite mixed when it was released. 
Oh really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, the box office did pretty well. It, it, the budget was a million pound, million, well, a million dollars, sorry, and it made fifty-one million. So I mean, that sounds wow. like a big success, obviously, yeah, in is. terms of versus budget versus box office take. But I think there was a couple of reviews I read where they generally praised the cast, but it was more that they were sort of like, well, are teenage problems really problems? <laughs> Do you know the whole, that whole thing? They sort of, <laughs> they sort of really trivialised it. That's such a, a thing of the of the time, isn't it? Though it's the an, an adult critiquing yeah. a child. Is that is high school really that difficult? Yeah, I mean, that's essentially that really... what the assistant principal in the film keeps telling them. Well, this is it. The yeah. film feels like it's designed to combat those opinions, and yet the actual opinions of the film were exactly that, which I thought was quite interesting. Because like he's sort of trying to push teenage issues to the front of the agenda and be like, no, you know, these are serious issues. I mean, and they are. I mean, like one of them's considering suicide, as we said before. One of them's like uh, being pushed to the brink by his father to become a wrestling champion. Yeah, Jud-, Jud Nelson's character shows like a cigarette burn, doesn't he, on his arm. So he's being obviously being abused by his father. Yeah. These are genuine issues, and like, why aren't? And I think it was because there wasn't a lot of exposure at the time on TV or film for these kind of problems. Usually, teenagers were put in these categories, and they were background characters. Whereas these thrust them to the front, saying, "You know, they're not just these specific set subtypes. People are all these things and none of these things at the same time." It's interesting that that he's trying to Johnny Hughes with the film is trying to argue against that critique, but that is the critique that the film received from some people. So that was funny. Yeah, that is, that is really, it's really interesting. I, I think it's just when I always read these sort of okay, New Yorker article sort of thing, it's having problems with relationships is nothing like paying taxes or something like this, or, you know, having to take out a second mortgage. It's the it's the seriousness in relation to yourself and how you, how it makes you feel. It's not the actual yeah. event. That's the, the problem. You can only have your own problems. Yeah, you can't, <laughs> you can't have everyone else's yeah, problems. Yeah. You've got your, yeah. We'll talk a bit more about the film in a bit, but should we move on to... Um, this. Actually, before we do that, I did write down if you were going to categorise yourself as any of these subsets during your high school time, would you class yourself as the criminal, the princess, the athlete, the brain, or the basket case? Dietrich. Princess. <laughs> <laughs> I would categorise you as the princess as well, D. Thank you. <laughs> I definitely have to go with the brain then. As wish I was that brainy, but I just I I must fall closer to that one than any of the others. Mm, interesting. Okay. And what about you, Alex? Um, 40 goals a season, Alex? Well, yeah, I'm possibly the athlete, I suppose. <laughs> but probably none of the above, or maybe a bit of all of the above. I think that's probably the point of the film, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. We're all a bit of the above. Right, so let's talk about the song. As Dee mentioned at the beginning, the song is Don't You Opens Bracket, Open Brackets, Opens Bracket, Open Bracket, Forget About <laughs> Me, Close Bracket. And it was recorded by the Scottish band Simple Minds. Um, were we aware of Simple Minds? Any other songs by them other than this one? No. No. Uh, aware of the band, can't think of any other songs. No. So the interesting thing about this song, which you're probably not aware of unless you've done any prior research, is that it wasn't actually written by them. Because they were a sort of semi-successful band in Europe at the time. Not so much in then really broke in America. But they were relatively famous. But the song was written by a man called Keith Fawzi and another man called Steve Schiff. They were writing the score for Breakfast Club. And they specifically composed this song for that and then pitched it to Simple Minds, rather, wow. which I think is interesting if we look at the song later on. But it's probably not what you would expect, especially with an app like a pre existing pop band. Like it makes sense for stuff like Disney films, maybe, where they're like, oh, well, we'll write a song and we'll just get anyone to record it. It's interesting that this is a proper band 
and the song yes. was written for them. I read that Keith Fawzi was a big fan of Simple Minds, um, and he had them in mind when he wrote it. Actually, he, he has written quite a few other songs from films. So he won an Academy Award for the song Flashdance, What a Feeling in 1983. Wow, what a tune. He also wrote yep. songs for Ghostbusters, Beverly Hills Cop, and the theme, Wait For It, to Never Ending Story. Nice. My sure this guy, this guy is just a cinematic success. Yeah, I'm sure we'll cover that at some point. I'm assuming based on what you, how you worded that, he didn't write the Ghostbusters song. No, not not that I could see, but it was a song that was on the soundtrack. He wrote the song for Beverly Hills Cop, I think, The Heat Is On. The Heat Is what a On. Song. Um, but it's not the main wow. theme. I think that's the one that he'd written. So um, I've got it in my notes, so unless my notes are completely wrong. But yeah, he's had a bit of a track record. Yeah, my God. When he pitched the song to Simple Minds, they actually turned it down originally. I read an interview with Jim Kerr, the lead singer, and they basically turned it down because they didn't want to be a band that recorded other people's songs. And actually, the fact that it had been written for them made it even worse because it was like, well, we don't want to record a song that's like a Simple Minds song, which you can kind of see the point. And then the song after it was offered to them was offered to Billy Idol and Brian Ferry, of course, of Roxy Music, but they both turned it down as well. But eventually Jim Kerr's wife at the time, who was Chrissy Hind from The Pretenders, who you might remember from that Friends episode. Okay. <laughs> Smell the cat. So she couldn't help convince him to record it. And it got to number one in the US eventually, but not in the UK. It didn't do that as well in the UK. And the main addition to the song that actually they ended up putting in Simple Minds was the La La La's at the end. <laughs> Just the, like filling out the time. Yeah, well, I think it was a placeholder, but then Keith Fawzi, the guy who wrote it, was like, oh, I love that, let's keep that in. Okay, okay. So um, it's quite interesting that, as I said before, the, the the song was written for the film, not by the band and just placed in the film. Do you think maybe the message of the song or the words in the song relate in some way to what happens in the film? And there was a specific reason why they put those words in there? I think so, yeah. It's sort of the the loss of self as an individual at the start of the film and that they're kind of just living a life that is what either their teacher expects them to be mainly in relation to Bender Judd Nelson's character for being the criminal and it's just like this is what you're going to be doesn't matter what you do this is a path that's already laid out for you and I guess through the film as it goes on they start to realize maybe not necessarily what's important to them but more of what they want to do and what they want to be like and maybe some of the things they their parents think are essential or valuable might not be to them. Don't you forget about me is I am a person, not just these archetypes that it says on you know on the poster and in the letter at the end. They are much more. Yeah, and if we take the official synopsis as as written as canon, then there's also an element that don't you forget about me refers to these characters that they don't meet again, they don't they never speak again. Yeah, definitely. They hope that this day in detention has a lasting impact on each other. Yeah, yeah, I think I think both definitely. So in terms of the song, when it features in the film, it's in the opening credits and it's at the end. Did you feel like there was a difference in your sort of I don't know connection to the song at the beginning to the end? Do you think that that it meant something different at the end? And did actually the, the the end scene where it's quite, you know, like he raises his fist in the air, it's really triumphant. Do you think that that was kind of jarring in comparison to the sort of darker tone of the film? Like, all of a sudden it's this sort of like light-hide, like sort of they're all kissing at the end, like it's all a bit odd. And then he sort of like just walks off and it's like, oh yeah, we've achieved something great today. And maybe, maybe you know, in, in their, the context of their world they have. But I just wondered whether you thought it was a bit, it maybe didn't quite match the tone of, of everything that happens. It could just be the fist thumping the air because uh, he's pulled Molly Ringwald. <laughs> it's quite a powerful song. 
I think it represents like the tides of change more at the end. I think the start, just because it's playing over introduction cards, it's just it's just the song. So that's all you've got. You've got nothing to base it on or anything to tie it to in relation to the narrative. I think it's just sort of a premonition for what's to come. And then at the end, it's more interwoven in the narrative. I think during the opening credits, if you ask me straight, what did you think that all meant? I got serious school shooter vibes. Really? Interesting. Yeah. Like, don't you forget about me being more like infamy. Like, I need to be known. And then there's the whole, I don't like Monday scratched in the wall whilst the song plays. Oh, of course. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, that's interesting. I was watching it just going, oh my God, one of these is about to kill themselves or kill everyone else in the school. I mean, that would be a huge change from his previous works of 16 Candles and Weird Science. I suppose it'd be more like Dead Poets Society. Yeah, because he kills himself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, not to so spoil it. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> no song in it. We won't cover it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I know what you mean, though. He's got like, especially Bender. He has got that sort of anarchistic element of him. In someone in that predicament who thinks they've got nothing, you know, everyone thinks they're a failure and their life is going to be a failure. That is the kind of people that are pushed to, you know, react. It's like a wild animal being pushed in the corner of a room. It's either going to freeze or it's going to fight. So yeah, I can see why you thought it might go that way. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now that you say it, it's like, yeah, I can kind of see that it almost feels like that's how they're setting it up. Yeah, and it shows Jack's locker where it has like, you will die if you open this locker and stuff like that. As if it was hiding a weapon in there. Yeah, it's quite scary, isn't it? Yeah, and the empty sort of corridors as well. It's kind yeah. of like, yeah, it's it's got like a ghostly... Quite solemn. Yeah, like a ghostly solemn vibe, yeah. Interesting point. I was reading an article, and it was actually written by Molly Ringwald, and it was in The New Yorker. It was from 2018. And she does kind of a retrospective critique of the John Hughes films that she was in, which are Pretty in Pink, Sixteen Candles, and, of course, Breakfast Club. And she does a sort of retrospective in a post-Me Too world. So I was kind of wondering, when you guys watching it recently, what you thought to the scene in particular where Judd Nelson's character goes under the table, you know, when he's hiding from the, the head teacher. And he kind of, it's kind of implied that he maybe touches Molly Ringwald inappropriately. Yes. So I kind of wanted to think what you thought about that. And as well, just the actual portrayal of the two female characters in it. Because I feel like the fact that Molly Ringwald's character ends up with Judd Nelson's character in the end is odd considering how he behaves towards her throughout. And also the other character, played by Ali Sheedy, she kind of like needs to have a makeover in order for the jock played by Emilio Estevez to sort of recognise her in that way. But at the end, they, they sort of, the two couples are formed. So I just wondered what you kind of thought about that. Deep question, I know, but... <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, when re-watching it, it did make me uncomfortable. I didn't remember it before, but I remember, especially the bit when he's basically looking at, um, I forget Molly Ringwald's character. Claire, Claire, I think it is. Claire. Looking at her underwear, it does feel very awkward and very uncomfortable. Yeah, it was a bit grotesque. I didn't like it. It kind of took me out of the film. Yes. Just to add something else to that as well, because I think there could be an argument, oh, well, you know, it was of its time, but they actually got a, a different actress to do that scene because obviously Molly Ringwald was only about 16 or 17, I think, of filming. Okay. So they actually got an older actress to do that bit, which obviously shows that they know it was inappropriate as well at the time. Yeah. I think it wouldn't be a problem if there isn't a redemption arc of sorts with Bender. Like, yeah. he is the final character, you know, he's the fist in the air, he's, like, achieved something in maybe a life that doesn't have much success. 
if it kind of just ended with redemption elements of that, you know, he's not all anarchistic, yeah. you know, wanting to the world to burn, yeah. that's fine. But at the end, it almost seems like, I mean, he gets the girl. That's the issue, isn't it, I think? That, you know, that's the thing. He gets the girl by basically, I mean, he, he is awful all the way through to her. He's not, he doesn't really have many moments where he's being nice. There's moments where he's less awful. Because there's, there's not such an issue of having horrible characters, obviously, because that happens in films all the time. No. It's, it's the fact that at the end, he succeeds in getting what he wants after being just pretty much a knob the entire time. And although, like, yeah, yes. you can argue that he's had issues, he has issues at home and, you know, he's not doesn't have a great life. That's almost the excuse. And it's like, well, that shouldn't be an excuse for him getting what he wants, ultimately. No. I would recommend reading the article because it is really interesting. She sort of, she doesn't really go full on out and say, you know, like John Hughes film should be stricken from the record. No one should watch them ever. I think it's a case of you find... Because she wants those residuals. (laughs) Well, obviously she's in the films, yeah. But it's a case of, you know, you find the good in films. It doesn't necessarily have to be an entirely perfect experience, but it shouldn't also not go without mention in the future that, you know, there were some dodgy things going on in John Hughes films. And maybe, because you mentioned, Ben, that he was in National Lampoons, and possibly, I think she argues that if you go back and watch, like, read some of his articles that he wrote for them and, and some of the films, I think, like, Family Vacation and stuff, maybe, these problems were already there. So it's, quite, it's an interesting read. Yeah, you can definitely see, if you look at his catalogue of films, they're all very, mostly masculine films. I guess you could argue Pretty in Pink isn't, but it's still a very... It's a view of women in that that want to, you know, it's, it's all about the prom. It's all about, you know, uh, sort of appearances and things like this. Most of his films are very, I mean, Weird Science, I guess there's lots of, you know, that's just sort of like young boys' fantasies of, yeah. you know, of sexualizing women. Yeah. That's what that film's about. I mean, she talks about um, 16 Candles, apparently. I've, I've not seen it myself, but there's a scene in there where there's potentially like a, a rape scene it at is, the end, yes, where it's like so. an implied sort of like non-consensual sex scene. I think I think it was just it was just interesting to see someone who was in the films at the time sort of go back and look at them through a a more mature or well you know like an old, a, a new lens really. I wanted to just draw your attention to the nominees and the winners for best song in the Oscars of this particular year. Don't you forget, Mami wasn't nominated. I don't think Breakfast Club was nominated for anything, but the actual nominees this year were so good. I'm not surprised. Right, so I'll just read them out for you. I just called to say I love you by Stevie Wonder was the winner from the film The Women in Red. Good song. Against All Odds by Phil Collins was also nominated. Good song. Footloose, Kenny Loggins. Good song. Also nominated. Let's Hear It for the Boys, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) From Top Gun. No. (laughs) Also from Footloose was also nominated. And Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr. He didn't stand a chance, really, did it? He didn't stand a chance against those. Strong year. I was surprised it wasn't nominated, but now you've told me who the nominees were, I am not surprised at all. I would say all of, was it five songs you said then? All five were better? then Don't You Forget About Me. I think, And I like Don't You Forget About Me. Yeah, I think what's weird about those five songs is they're still, I know it's not that long ago, 85, but they're still all, like, every, most people know those songs. It's not like any of them have sort of disappeared. And, and they're film songs, which is quite weird, really. But I suppose you don't even, like, except for Ghostbusters, which is clearly from the film Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose maybe Footloose from Footloose. You sort of, you wouldn't even consider most of those songs from films. Like, I didn't even know Against All Odds by Phil Collins was from a film. But it's from a film called Against All Odds. I knew that one. I, I I did know just because of the video. Yeah. So and Stevie Wonder, just called Say I Love You. They all they all just feel like famous pop songs. It's weird. I always think of John Hughes films as commercially successful, critically panned. I feel like they they become cult statuses of what it was like to live in the eighties because it's usually high school, like Chicago high school life. Yeah. 
And so I think it's kind of, especially nowadays, because 80s is so hot right now, that it, these films are looked on with tinted glasses in some ways. So I, I'm not surprised mm. that it didn't do well at the time. Or why Baby's Day Out didn't do well, if ever. Well, I mean, I'm surprised by that because it's a great film. Although I think my mum loves it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a classic. So, I mean, like, in terms of the relationship between the song and the film, whereas, like, we've just talked about those songs there, kind of, when I know most of them separate from the film, do you think that this song would be as famous now if it wasn't for its connection to the film? That's a tough one. Yeah, very. Yeah. <laughs> I think I knew the song. I, I saw this film quite late, I feel. Same. I definitely did as well, yeah. Like in my early early 20s, maybe? Yeah. Three days ago. <laughs> very late. I definitely knew... <laughs> in your early 20s, D. Yes, yes, oh, yes. Oh. I definitely knew the song a lot, you know, a lot before. And the fact that I guess it, bu- it does bookend the film. It's definitely not interwoven in the film for me because, you know, I knew of some films before... Some songs, rather, that were related to films long before I'd seen the film, but I didn't for this one. So, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but my reference to the song came much earlier than when I saw the film. One of the ways was uh, one of our friends used to sing it across Xbox Live to people when we were on Halo um, and annoy them, but this was for group chats. <laughs> so he used to abuse people with the lyrics of the song, interchanging his own name into it. And then the other, the other place that I knew it from was that episode of Futurama with Fry's brother. And uh, he saved the Breakfast Club soundtrack in the uh, vault. Because nobody will ever look there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it plays at the end of the episode, doesn't it? And I was like... Yeah, I guess that's why I think emotionally. Yeah, because it's a really good emotional episode of Future Armor, isn't it, as well? One of many. Yeah, one of many. Let's not talk about uh, Seymour. I always associate it more with the end of that episode than I do with this. Like, I see him in that sort of, like, glass-domed cemetery, <laughs> and, that's, and that's how yeah. I imagine it. So it's strange that then you find out, oh, well, I mean, obviously it references Breakfast Club in that, but I feel like I didn't know what that was. I was just like, I just know the song from that episode. I didn't really understand that it was a film soundtrack almost. So I guess I guess it did hold a place in my life beforehand, but only through cultural references. Yes, yeah. Like we said at the beginning of the podcast, about this film it's like it's referenced so many times probably because a lot of the people responsible for making entertainment now grew up with the film at the time so it probably was big in schools like the whole the scene with them dancing you know on the tabletop and stuff you see that reference so many times in different places oh yeah yeah and then you see it in the film it's like oh yeah it's that it's that thing (laughs) so it's just yeah it's just it's an interesting watch i suppose for that reason you've got to see it i feel because it's pop culture royalty and it's like it's like when when we did the episode on Butch Cassidy, Dean. There was there were so many like um, references that you'd seen to it before, but didn't really know where it was from. Or and then you yeah. and then you come to it and you see it in its natural habitat almost. And it's like oh, it's kind of underwhelming in a way because you don't see it fresh. It's a strange experience to how it probably was viewing it initially, and then talking about it afterwards. It's you just come to it at a different angle, I suppose. Yeah, there was there was one part of the film. It wasn't like a, a major part of the film that I'd seen in so many places and, again, GIFs on Twitter. And it was the bit where the brain, he puts on the sunglasses and he sort of looks up just after he's uh, had weed, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it, that, that bit I see everywhere. In fact, it was even the thumbnail on Netflix when I went to go watch it the other day. <laughs> really? <laughs> Actually, on the topic of Netflix thumbnails, when we finished the film and went back to the main screen, it was like, watch it again. And it had The Breakfast Club, but it had Molly Ringwald and the other Ali Sheedy. But post makeover, oh really? Oh, as the thumbnail? How <laughs> weird! One thing I know, speaking speaking of Netflix as well, when we when we were on it yesterday, the Breakfast Club was trending. 
Oh, really? They obviously anticipated oh, this episode. <laughs> we missed it. We missed the vote by a few weeks. <laughs> God, we always do this. But maybe it just picked up that you'd watched it, D. And it was like, oh, someone roughly quite close to you is, <laughs> is watching it, so it's trending. I am a trendsetter. Maybe because we're all in some ways in a detention of sorts. Ooh. <laughs> we're all living the True Breakfast Club experience. We're all having our own ball episode, as the community call it. Don't forget about me, Alec. <laughs> <laughs> Who said that? It was me, Dietrich. <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget about you, D. So I guess Molly Ringwald has sort of already answered this question, but do you think The Breakfast Club still has cultural significance in the year 2020? Like you say, pop culture, yes. I mean, it's going to be referenced for a long time. All those things we've spoken about. Y- yes, I feel like the the roles of the two females and what Alex was saying in the article, yes, I think the elements of it are definitely outdated with just kind of social commentary now being a lot more... Well, we're a lot more aware. Yeah, I think it's things of it are uncomfortable that might not have made people feel uncomfortable in the 80s yeah i mean I'd, i would echo that I, I i think it still is relevant culture certainly culturally relevant because things still continue to reference it don't they like it's not like those references were all coming from things from the early noise i think you still get stuff that sort of imitates it now so even if just to understand all those references is <laughs> worth watching uh, but i think it is i think it is a good film i think when i first watched it which was probably like been like in my early 20s maybe i enjoyed the film but i don't know whether maybe i missed the boat i know we talked earlier about the problems being trivial and there was a question about whether looking at it through an adult's lens you you would think that and i don't think they are but i do think at the same time because they are all teenage you kind of you do sort of drop into that mindset when watching it a little bit and you think yeah i mean they have got problems but <laughs> they're making a lot out of it you know i think it's maybe it's the melodrama of it so overtly over the top that you kind of I don't know. I think you sort of you said Ben that there's a, was was it magic realism you called it? Yeah, I think it's like a thing noted with John Hughes films in that it's kind of just something that it doesn't exist. It's not real, but it just kind of throws it in like the there's loads in Ferris Bueller. Uh, this film in itself is kind of a bit like that, isn't it? Because it's kind of an unreal situation that they've been thrust into and kept in for this entire time, and it just. I think it loses some of its profundity, I suppose is the word, maybe not, whether it's profundity or profoundness. It just loses that because it sort of just pushes it a bit too far and it tries to make you care too much when actually I think they could have, they could have dialed it down a bit. I think it's a good watch still. I think it's a fun yeah. film to watch. Yeah. Maybe it's a bit of cake and eating it too sort of thing, having, trying to have those serious elements that he's not used to putting in his films before, like the, the talk about suicide. And then within 30 seconds, they're all laughing, I guess, cause, because it's yeah. the flare gun element and it's a bonding moment. But I think in like two minutes later, Bender's in the um, rafters again, sort of crawling, you know, through with like a sort of almost like spy music going on. Yeah. And then he falls through the roof and then th- that's never really referenced again. The roof collapses. <laughs> and it's, like, it's very uh, like a sitcom. We don't yeah. like they don't think you don't have to stop and think about these things. Just keep going. Yeah. No consequences. So talking of no consequences, we're on to the, the big <laughs> nice. question of the podcast. Movie or song? Um, who wants to go first this week? Alex. Um, ooh. Personally, I think song. That's what I'm going to say, and I'm going to stick with it. You don't change my mind. And I'm not going to give a reason. <laughs> <laughs> what a podcast. <laughs> no, I will give a reason. I think I came to the song first, not really understanding what it was from. Um, although I suppose if you get rid of the film and wipe it from history, you don't have all the cultural references to it. 
but maybe that's not a terrible thing. <laughs> I don't know. I guess we would never know, would we? In that in that alternative reality, we would we'd have something else to be referenced. I think the song. I suppose maybe in this episode we didn't talk as much about the song, but I do think it um it sits well, and but it really bookends the film well. And I do think that there is a progression in terms of the interpretation of the lyrics and how it fits into the film from beginning to end. So I do think that the song really adds something to the film, and I just think it's a good song. You know, it's a fist pumping song, maybe because he <laughs> pumps his fist at the end of the film. I don't know, but it's just it feels very triumphant, even on its own. You don't need yes. the context of the film; it just has that sort of uplifting sound. I completely agree. It's a bit rambly, but... <laughs> I will take Alex's rambles and agree with them and add an extra plus one to the song. Yeah, I just think it's a it's a fantastic song. Yeah, the film's got its pop culture references, but I'd rather have the song than the film. Yeah, same. It's, it's a clean sweep of the song. I think we all kind of knew that was going to be the case, though. Yeah, I think so. Using your alternate reality itself, I think the song would still be popular. Yeah. The, the song is that good. Yeah. But then again, the song was written for the film. It's, it's a really difficult question for this one because I feel like a lot of the time they sit separately. It's an alternate reality. <laughs> what film is it written for in this alternate reality? It wasn't. <laughs> Man in the High Castle, Simple Minds. Men in Black, maybe? Although it's, it's interesting, actually, because I, I'd read somewhere that, because I think um, Pretty in Pink was released possibly the same year. In fact, going back to the Bow and Suit for Suit reference, it says Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, even St. Elmo's Fire. So I will take it from them that it was released in the same year. They, um, the, the scene, there's a final scene in Pretty in Pink where they do a, where there's a prom, and apparently they use this song. The song was used for to record that scene, and actually, if you go back and watch it, apparently the dance sequence is out because they changed it afterwards. I really can't be bothered watching Pretty in Pink again. But, well, when we do it in a few weeks, Ben, you'll have to. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> the song's great. The song already won. Save your podcast. Okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, so maybe the song. Maybe the song featured in Pretty in Pink, but then maybe you lose Pretty in Pink, the song, which is also a great song. So. Yeah, so thank you for joining us today. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Uh, let us know what you think uh, about, well, about the podcast, but also about the movie and the song. Is uh, The Breakfast Club the defining movie of your life? <laughs> um, so follow us on Twitter. I've actually fixed this on my notes, everybody. So it's TSFTMPod. Yay! Yay. First, it, we're about, what, four episodes in, and I finally said it without stumbling. <laughs> so it's goodbye from me, and goodbye from Alex. You want to know what I did to get in here? Nothing. I didn't have anything better to do. That's Alison Reynolds from Breakfast Club. Alex, you know what? You've done it exactly again. <laughs> oh, really? You've done it exactly again. And it's goodbye from Ben. Screw this. Right, thank you. Bye-bye. This is Simple Minds. Sincerely yours. That song from that movie. God damn it, Alex. one thing i want to say this is not just about the breakfast club but about all films we need more opening credits oh really do you think i really think opening credits makes a film better for example the italian job the opening credits of that <laughs> okay yeah That's just good. just having that moment it makes it a more cinematic experience way for like a minute and a half you just sat with music not much happening on the screen and it gets you into the feeling of the, of the film so right. bring back opening credits everybody